first of all, I think the best people talking about the Rebbe would be number one people who knew her, particularly women. I didn't know her, and I'm not a woman. But I'm talking about the Rebbe anyway. This is a, an, a school of women and women teachers. But I'm talking about the Rebbe Now, the thing is that the Rebbe passed away 30 years ago. I remember when she passed away, I was here. I was by her Levaya. And I remember the Shiva. So I guess I'll start with, with a little bit of history, because for you this is all unfamiliar. Um, I am born and bred in Crown Heights. I grew up here. I spent some time away from here in yeshiva and as a child, but for the most part, I'm a Crown I've lived here my whole life. I never saw her. I never saw the Davidson. I may have seen her, but I wouldn't know how she looked. It's very simple. When I passed away, I was over 22. I was a big boy. And um, I grew up in the 70s, and the Rebbeton was never around, never around. She was so never around that she really wasn't part of our discourse. We didn't talk about her much. We know now, first of all, that the Rebbeton had many, many people that she was involved with. She had a lot of acquaintances, a lot of friends, a lot of people who talked to her, who would come visit her and see her. Um, but for the typical Kronheitzer, like myself, you didn't have special connections. The Rebetzin was literally out of sight and out of mind. We didn't think, we didn't, she wasn't a part of our lives at all. My sister married Rabbi Majeski's brother, <laughs> um, which is how I come to the school many, many moons ago. And mm-hmm. her brother-in-law, Rabbi Majeski's brother-in-law, Rabbi Bela Lipsker, had a personal relationship with the Rebetzin. So when my sister was engaged to be married, they went to see her. It was an appointment, they went to see her. It was a big deal. I was at that time when my sister got married, I was, I was approximately, I was close to 17. And uh, I remember the preparation and the nervousness and the meeting and they went and they came. So my mother went and my sister went and my sister's mother-in-law went and I believe Rabbi Lipsker, Battle Lipsker accompanied, they brought them to the house. And the table was set, and everything was very uh, organized and very beautiful. They came back, and I started asking questions, and I got very few answers. There was, no, <laughs> there was nothing to say. They sat, Rebetzin prepared a table. When she hosted guests, she, it was very important for her that she should look pretty, and that the table should be set. I don't know what she served, but she always served appropriate, uh, I don't know what the right word is, kibbutz for the kind of guests she was hosting. When she hosted children, she made sure that the kinds of things she put on the table children would enjoy. When she hosted adults, she served the kinds of things that she thought adults would enjoy. And based on who she was hosting, she made accommodations appropriately. She put a lot of thought into it, a lot of thought into it, and it took a lot out of her. Um, This is parenthetical, but again, this is all hearsay. I understand that the Rebetzin took her public role as the Rebetzin, which was not very public, but to whatever extent she had a role as the Rebetzin very, very seriously, and it put a lot of stress on her. It was very, she appreciated that she was the daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe, the wife of the Rebbe, and whenever she appeared in a place where she would be seen, she had to look good. And it was not easy for her to always look like a Rebetzin. It was not something that she wanted to do, it was not in her nature. 
It was not, she didn't sign on for it, you understand? She was feeding Rebbe's daughter, but she never signed on to be a Rebbezin. Um There's a story which goes around, and I believe it's true. I think I even confirmed it with some people who would know, that the Rebbezin had a childhood friend. And um, there's two versions to the story. One version of the story that she said to her childhood friend, I don't want my husband to be a Rebbe. <laughs> I don't want to be a Rebetzin. And the other version is that the Rebetzin said to her friend as girls, my father has no sons. So after my father, Lubavitch is going to end. Decades later, decades, 50 years later, this woman came to America and visited with the Rebetzin. And during the course of their visit, the Rebetzin asked her if she remembers what she told her as a girl. And she said that she didn't remember. And when she walked out of the house, she said to the people who accompanied her, of course I remember what she told me as a girl. <laughs> she remembered exactly what she told her and what she was referring to, that the Rebison really didn't see herself as a Rebison. She didn't want the role. She always used to say, my husband is a Rebbe, but I'm not a Rebison. But she felt that responsibility. Whenever she appeared, in any time people would see her, she had to look right. And it was not something that was easy for her. Hostessing was something which she took very seriously. Anybody that's been in her house describes how much thought she put into the people who came to see her. And um, people who were close to her said that if you want to do the Rebbe's in the favor, don't come to see her. Because it took a lot out of the koiches out of her, it took thought of her, and, and it wasn't her thing. Some people are social beings, the Rebbe's was not at all a social person. She had the, her husband's nature, she had the Rebbe's nature, they're both by nature. Um, introverted, solitary kinds of people, but um, she was the daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe, she knew that, she was the wife of the Rebbe, she knew that, and to whatever extent she needed, she did it. Now, going back to my sisters, <laughs> my sisters meeting with her, so when she came home, I crossed, I was a bocher, so I was like on fire, yeah? So what happened? Nothing happened, what do you mean? She sat and she chatted, mostly with the Mokotanas, she didn't talk to my sister much, she didn't talk to my mother much, because she didn't know them. And um, she was not easily, easy to, to bring new acquaintances into her sphere. People that she knew, she was very comfortable, new people. If you were a stranger and you wanted to become the Rebetzin's friend, you had to work very hard. Once you became a friend, you were a friend, mm. but it was not someone that she did easily. So my, my sister told me that she spoke to the Mechatenes, she knew her, she had seen her many times, and they chatted about very domestic things, very balabatisha things, nothing very exalted, nothing very holy, they didn't talk about the Rebbe, they talked about wedding plans and things of this sort. So this is really the closest I got to the Rebbe as a person, as a child, you understand? A couple of years after that, they built an apartment for the Rebbe and the Rebbe next door to 770 because it became impossible for the Rebbe to walk. The Rebbe used to walk home. Shabbos, Friday night in Shabbos, she was in the house. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about a person who doesn't come out into the street, the Rebetzin never went to shul. The Rebetzin never went to shul. Never went to shul. She didn't even go to shul for Yisker. Now, who doesn't go to shul for Yisker? Who doesn't go to shul for Yisker? Um, now, I, I think, I don't know this for certain, but I have reasons to believe, more than reasons to believe, that for the first 20 years after the Rebbe became Rebbe, she had a shul next door. The house east of the house that the Rebbe and the Rebetzin live. If you go to the President Street, the house that the Rebbe and the Rebetzin live, the house which is closer to Kingston, 
next to the house belongs to a non-Jew. That house belonged to the Boston Rebbe. The Boston Rebbe had a shul and he had a mikveh in his home. People say that the Rebbe used to sneak into his mikveh on occasion because the Rebbe didn't use the mikveh publicly that often. And people also say that the Rebbe didn't daven there. As long as that shul was next door, she davened there because the Rebbe didn't have a problem going to a shul. She had a problem going to a shul where she would rec- be recognized. I know a Yid who has a shul, an Ashkenaz shul in Kran Heights, Beth David Gershon, who told me, and again, this is me piecing pieces of a puzzle together, hope, hopefully correctly, that when the bus had moved out of the neighborhood, the next year, the Rebbe came to daven in his shul. She came only once. She sat in the back row. And I suspect that she decided that uh, she was being given too much attention even there, so she didn't go to shul. It was very important to the Rebbeton not to be treated as such. She wanted to be like everybody else. She didn't want to be noticed. She wanted to be treated and so on. Um, in case you don't know, the Rebbeton worked her whole adult life. Uh, she worked in the Central Library of New York. And there's a lot of evidence that during the war years, she actually worked with the Rebbe as an engineer. The Rebbeton was an engineer, apparently. Um, there's a fellow just now who did an interview named, named uh, Roth who says that when the Rebbe went to the Navy Yard, he went with the Rebbeson. They went together. They worked, the Rebbeson worked as an engineer. Um, but later on, I guess after the war was over, she worked as a librarian. She worked in the library. She worked as a librarian. Um, she, in other words, it wasn't like she stayed in the house because she didn't like people. <laughs> she stayed in the house because she didn't like attention. And as long as you treated her like everybody else, which was really only possible if you didn't know who she was, she was perfectly fine. The minute people would discover who she was, she would disappear. Because she really didn't want any attention. She really didn't want any uh, public image. Um, there used to be a bakery on North Strand Avenue called Lowen's Bakery. And she used to go Friday by Bchala, like anybody else, with her sister. They would stand in line and somebody noticed her one week and told the people ahead of, ahead of her in line I don't know if you know, but this is the Lubavitcher Rebetzin. So the line disappeared. She went to the counter. She purchased her challah. Never went to the store again. She ordered. She didn't want to the store again. Um, anyway, so they built this house, this apartment next to 770. And the Rebetzin would come every week and spend Shabbos with the Rebbe in the apartment. And this was very special, very nice. Shabbos and Yom Tev, the Rebbe and the Rebetzin were together because for a year or two, the Rebbe stayed in his room, and she was by herself on President Street, which is so sad. So they finally built this department, and the Rebbe would come right before Shabbos and leave right after Shabbos. And people who had Seichel understood that they shouldn't stand there and watch her. Um, her Shalmer would drive her down the driveway, and they would live, there was a basement, there was a set of stairs that she would go in. Anyway, the story is told that a couple of boys saw her car coming and they went to look at her and she ran and she fell and she broke her hip. She didn't want to be seen. Um, there's a story that goes around now about a boy who was running to 770 late after Shabbos to catch Maidiv and he smashed into her. She was waiting on Union Street because Shambel would pick her up after Shabbos and when he smashed into her, she grabbed a hold of the gate and she turned her, head, her face away. He wrote her an apology letter the next day, and her response was, I deliberately did not look. I didn't want to see who you were. Why did you apologize? I didn't want to know who it was. That was who she was. So this was the Rebetzin that none of us knew. Literally none of us knew. Now, she knew a lot of people. And you heard so much about all the people who knew her, but I was not in that circle. I didn't know her at all. And then she passed away. The Rebetzin passed away um, in the middle of the night, the, um, 
the Rebbe's had not been feeling well, and there was a conference apparently of doctors, either Sunday or Monday in the house, in which the Rebbe personally participated. They talked over her condition. She sat in on a meeting, and it, it, it was decided that she was examined, and her situation was stable. She was getting weaker, but her situation was stable. And at a certain point, the decision was made that she should be hospitalized just to do tests. That's what happened, really. And the Rebbe was going to accompany her to the hospital, and she said to the Rebbe that he should stay home. Now, I may be wrong, but I think that when the Rebbe went to the doctor, to the hospital, the Rebbe, as a rule, went along. In other words, if she went to the hospital during the day, in other words, if the Rebbe wasn't sure, he wasn't sure, but this was in the middle of the night, the fact that the Rebbe did not accompany the Rebbe, I think, is very significant. He was not there when she passed away. They took her to the hospital, she asked for a glass of water, she made a bracha, and she passed away just like that. Um, waiting, she was in a wheelchair, waiting for a room. The Rebbe was informed, her body, her, she was brought back to Crown Heights, 7 o'clock in the morning, the alarm sounded. 7 o'clock, they have the alarm that rings Friday afternoon, yeah? That alarm was actually put in to announce Fabrengins and Sichis and so on. When the Rebbe passed away, the alarm sounded. I remember the alarm ringing at 7 in the morning. It was very eerie. It was very unsettling. It didn't make sense. And we all uh, found out that the Rebbe passed away. The Levi, I think, was at noon. Um... The Levi went from the Rebbe's house. The Rebbe followed the Aaron. The Rebbe walked. I, I, was, I was in front of the Rebbe's house. I watched the Rebbe walk down the steps and follow behind the Aaron. And they walked till Kingston. For the Rebbe, it was very hard to walk. The plan was that we were going to walk till Kingston and President, down President Eastern Parkway, then past 770, all on foot. And at a certain point, the Rebbe turned around to Rabbi Groner and said, where's the car? He pushed couldn't walk. So um, the Rebbe got into the car and the Levi left. The way the Levi was done was basically that they kept us out of the cemetery. I mean, I went to the Levi and I stood by one of the fences not letting people in. That was my job. Um, there were many, many people in the cemetery, but when the Rebbe's mother had passed away, the Rebbe was very unhappy with how people were behaving, particularly the Bacharim. Um, and they tried to affect that the Rebbe's Levi would actually be attended within the cemetery by few people. People stood outside. I didn't see the cemetery. Oh, there's pictures of the Levi. I was not there at all. And the Rebbe flew back to Crown Heights. The Rebbe came back to his home, and then something really, really very surprising occurred. The Rebbe opened his home. Now, I'm telling you this story 30 years later, so it's very hard for you to understand hindsight. The Rebbe's house was off limits. The Rebbe's house was nobody's business. And I'll qualify it. In the tradition of Lubavitch, and I'm sure it's not just Lubavitch, it's tradition of all Rebbe's. The private and the public of a Rebbe were very intertwined. There really was a very, very gray area between what was personal and what was public. Um, in the Chabad tradition, there was no such thing as a Rebbe is not available. If you needed a bracha at 2 in the morning, you had a bracha at 2 in the morning. You needed a bracha at 5 in the morning, or 5 in the morning. The Rebbe never slept, or whenever he slept, but... There was no such thing as the Rebbe goes home and the business shuts down until the next morning. I heard that an older chassid who had been in Lubavitch came to Kran Heights the first time. And in the evening, the Rebbe got into a car and he said, where is the Rebbe going? And they told him the Rebbe is going home. When is the Rebbe coming back? The Rebbe is coming back in the morning, which in those days probably meant, unless it was Monday and Thursday, and there was Kiesa Teda around noon. The Rebbe used to leave 12 o'clock at night, 1 in the morning. After Yechidus, he could leave 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, and he would come back at noon, sometimes 1 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And he asked, and if somebody needs the Rebbe between now and tomorrow morning, so he said, the Rebbe's not available. He started crying. Because in Mababish, there was no such thing as an unavailable Rebbe. It was no such thing. The Rebbe was available 24 hours a day. Now, people who had connections <laughs> with the Rebbe, I mean, the Rebbe told Rabbi Lipsker, who mentioned before, that he could call any time, day or night. And he did. If he had an emergency, if he had people who needed help, and it was very important, he'd call even 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 6 in the morning, the Rebbe always picked up the phone on the first ring. Nobody knows when these people slept. They did very little sleeping. And she would go into the Rebbe and come back and answer and so on and so forth. So with connections, the Rebbe was available. But to the typical Lubavitcher, if you had a crisis, if you had an emergency, and it was in the middle of the night, and you, you couldn't, the secretariat was closed, the office was closed. Um, that's how it was. And all of a sudden, the Rebbe opened his home. The Rebbe's home became open. The moment the Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe opened his home. And from that moment forward, there was no longer night in Lubavitch. Because when the Rebbe was at home, there was a secretary there all the time, and uh, people called in the middle of the night. And even if the Rebbe was not available for direct contact, there would be like a table placed in front of the Rebbe's door, and you would put down notes, and the Rebbe would periodically open his door and read these notes, and they'd be at, all night long, there were things coming in and out. There was the idea that the Rebbe goes home, and then he's not available until the morning ended the day the Rebbe passed away. Um, whether the Rebbe was at home or in 770. Um, for example, the Rebbe was never left alone. There was always somebody there. It was either a secretary or a bachrim who were given instructions, and the phone would ring, and they'd write notes, and they'd put them on a table outside the Rebbe's door. They would never knock on the door, and every half hour or so the door would open, and you see the Rebbe's hand reach out and pull them whatever papers were there, and he would read them, and then he'd put, put answers back, and you could take them and call people back a half an hour later, or an hour later, and so on. And this was a very, very significant change. But uh, there's two parts to it. The first part is that all of a sudden the Rebbe was available 24 hours a day. But the second part was the Rebbe opened his home. The Rebbe's house was so off limits, it, it almost didn't exist in our imagination. And all of a sudden we're marching into the Rebbe's house. They, they took away some of the furniture and they made the Rebbe's largest living room, I, I don't know what it's called, living room or dining, whatever room it is, into a shul, and they put an Aron Kaidish, which is there until this very day. And for that year, the Rebbe davened for the Yomit, and he was, except for Shabbat and Yom Tif, for the most part, the Rebbe was home. During the year of Avelis, the Rebbe was at home almost the entire year. Subsequent years, it would fluctuate. The Rebbe would come to 770, and he'd go home for periods, and come back to 770, and go home for periods. Um, I remember when I got married. I got married in 1989, December 1989. And we all look forward to coming to 770 for your chuppah, that the Rebbe is there. And I walked to 770, and the Rebbe's lights are out. And I turned to Rabbi Klein, who happens to my uncle, where's the Rebbe? <laughs> he said, the Rebbe went home. I was so disappointed. <laughs> the Rebbe wasn't by my chuppah. So he consoled me and said, don't worry, if you can be by your chuppah from his room, it can be by your chuppah from President Street as well. Um, but as time went on, the Rebbe went home less and less. And at a certain point, it almost seems like the Rebbe stopped going home altogether. He lived in 770. Um, but whether he was at home or at seven, he was available 24 hours a day. Going into the Rebbe's home, for me at that time, seemed like an invasion. It seemed like such an invasion because it was so foreign to us. It was very, very, very foreign to us. So I didn't do it. The Rebbe opened his home. The, the, Levi, the Rebbe passed away at midnight, like one in the morning on Tuesday to Wednesday. Last, the same exact three as this year. Chof Beishra was on a Wednesday. And... 
uh, we got the news in the morning. If the people were near 770, they knew during the night. We, the alarm rang at 7 in the morning, and it woke us up and told us that there's something happening that's unusual. Um, the Rebbe came back from the Levaya probably around 2.30 or quarter to 3, I don't know exactly. And by the way, it's known that when the Rebbe was told that the Rebbe had passed away, the first thing the Rebbe said, and this is how the rumor, I heard it then, was on the kinder, the shluchen. You should tell her children. Kama, the shluchen. The Rebbe wanted to give people an opportunity to come to the Levaya, and they, they quickly spread word wherever they could. People came from where they could, if they could get on flights, to come to Tabi by the Levaya. That mincha was open only to shluchen. Because the shluchim came from wherever they were and had to go back. So they came in, they came to the Levaya, and then they went into the Rebbe's home, the Rebbe Mincha, and the Rebbe spoke after Mincha, the first day the Rebbe said a sikha, and he talked about the idea of Nicham that you're not supposed to console a mourner for the first three days. Not supposed to console a mourner for the, and it was the first day. So the Rebbe said, so consoling a mourner, which you're not supposed to do for three days, is halacha l'meshimisina, it's not in the chumash explicitly. But is one of the Tayyag mitzvahs. And that applies all the time. So if you're doing Nichamavelim and Nichamavelim, gotta wait a couple of days. But if you're doing Nichamavelim with Avas Yisrael, you can do it at any time. That was basically what the Rebbe said. And, um, and the Rebbe said Shiva. And every day, three times a day, the Rebbe's door would open. So for davening, there were rules about who was allowed in. And after davening, each one of the three tefillahs, people would line up. And the Rebbe would sit. And everybody would walk by the Menachem Oval. Um, and you could come, if you wanted, you could have been Menachem Oval 15 times. You go every tefillah, you walk by the Rebbe and say, I'm welcome and move on. Um, I, I was not in the Rebbe's home. I didn't go in. I couldn't do it. So I didn't see this, but you could see that there, was, there, were, there were no pictures supposed to be taken. There was no video taken. There's audio. But some non labavitches took some pictures, and I've seen them. The Rebbe sat in Thousand Film. After Shachas, Rebbe sat in Thousand Film. And people would march by and they would, Menachem Oval. And when people of prominence or importance would come by, they would chat. Some of them would actually sit for a minute or two. Some would sit for as much as 15 or 20 minutes. And there's an audio, there's a, an audio record of all of these conversations. They're very, very interesting. They're very personal in a lot of cases. And they're also very generous. The Rebbe is very with the people who are coming uh, to consult him. I'll, I'll share with you two little, two little events of Nicham which are particularly touching for me. Um, the first is the Stolen Rebbe came. The Stolen Rebbe then uh, was probably not 40. He probably wasn't 40 years old. He was a young man. He, he was destined to be a Rebbe before he was born. When the Friedrich is stolen and passed, he had no sons. So he said, my first grandchild that is born with disfigured fingers, they have in their family uh, a disfigured, they have some kind of a genetic thing that they have children born with, people born with missing fingers or some of the fingers are fused. I don't know exactly what it is. That's the next Rebbe. So as a, as a newborn, he was a Rebbe. And in Stalin, this happened before. They called it a Yinuk. He was a Rebbe before he had a bris. Um, anyway, he came to see the Rebbe the second day, Thursday night. And he sat for a very short time, but it was very, very emotional. He sat down and he asked the Rebbe, how old was the Rebbe? There's two questions. And the Rebbe said, Jewish people don't count. 
But this Chafei Adir, she would have turned 87. And then he said to her, what did she pass away from? She obviously he spoke to her in Yiddish. He said in Yiddish. And the Rebbe started crying. And the Rebbe said, Funaninyim Pnimi. Yedin is Talkus is Aninyim Pnimi. I don't know if I have language to translate that. But basically it means from something spiritual, from something deep. Whenever a tzaddik passes, right? A regular person dies because the machine breaks down. Yeah. Tzaddikim pass because the neshama is lifted. It's a very different thing. Yedin is talkus. Whenever you have an event of talkus, it means a person who passes away, not because of the goof, but because of the neshama, which is, of course, only a big tzaddikim, it is a spiritual reason behind it. Yedin is talkus and impnimi. And then he said, Amokam, and he walked out. When he walked out, the Bacham said to him, well, why would you make him cry? What's the point? He sat there two minutes. He has two questions and left. I'm sorry. So, um, so the, he said to them, this is just the minute. This is the custom. I have seen more recently that when the Rebbe was Menachem Ovel, all the Guta Yidin, he asked the same two questions. Apparently, this is the tradition. He asked how old and from what. So the Stalinist was a young boy. He was Mamash a young man, but he came and he asked those two questions. The way the Rebbe greeted him is historic. The way the Rebbe greeted him is mind-blowing. I don't know of any other person that the Rebbe should greet this way. When he walked in, the Rebbe said to him, Ein ha'avol nasi An oval doesn't stand up for anybody, even for a Nasi b'Yisrael. <laughs> the Rebbe said it to a, to a boy chick, an American-born Rebbe. And I don't know anybody else that the Rebbe would say that kind of thing to. I find it fascinating. I don't know the significance of it. I always ask Stolen Echsidim what they think of it. So they told me that as soon as he walked out of the Rebbe, he told his Gabba, he told Echsidim, I'm not a Nazi. <laughs> this was his reaction. But okay, anyway, the second, the second event that I want to share when you get to the Shiva was the following. The Gere Rebbe lived in Israel. So he sent someone to represent him. Now, I don't know whether the Gere Rebbe told his representative what to say or didn't tell his representative what to say. But what happened is so interesting. Bechlau, when you come into a person like the Rebbe, you keep your mouth shut. You know, you talk as well as possible. But by an oval is particularly true because according to halacha, the law is that the oval is peseach. An oval sits. You don't talk to him because he's mourning. If he wants to keep his mouth shut, that's his business. So you wait for him to open, to initiate. So the Geresh Shliach walks in and the Rebbe begins that when a couple gets married, it's a binyan adayat. It's forever. Now remember, the Rebbe, the Rebbe did not have children. Which complicates matters, right? If you have children, you... And so the Rebbe says, binyan adayat means that since this expression is used in Torah, it's in the brachas of Sheva brachas, right? Binyan adayat is one of the brachas that means every marriage is an eternal thing. So even when there's a physical interruption, the marriage continues forever. This is what the Rebbe tells him. Now, I don't know if he was listening or he wasn't listening, but he had a prepared speech. <laughs> what was his prepared speech? That when the free, they could get it passed. If Omar Kagera lost his wife, he was terribly, terribly broken. And he said things to the effect that I don't know how anybody can be consoled because this is an irreparable loss and so on and so forth. So the Rebbe interrupts him. and says, I just told you it's a beginning of the ad. <laughs> In other words, the Rebbe told him before he spoke the answer to what he was going to say. And basically he said, I don't want to hear what it is you have to say. Because the message that he came with was, 
it's over and I'm sorry. And the Rebbe said, it ain't over. No, it's a binyan adayad. And you listen to the tape. It's very interesting. Because the Rebbe sort of told him preemptively, if he was paying attention, he would have prepared a different speech, you understand? Because the Rebbe clearly told him that I don't buy this idea that when a person passes, the marriage is over. Um, and there are many, many allusions to this. Do you know that the Rebbe actually asked Arov after the Rebbe passed away if he's still a son-in-law of the Friedrich Rebbe? And the Rav said yes, and the Rebbe said prove it, that he had to come up proof <laughs> that it's forever, it's a bond that's forever. Anyway, the Rebbe opened his home, and people came in. I did not go into the Rebbe's house, I couldn't do it. In my wildest dreams, I could not imagine that after Shiva, the Rebbe's home would become a public place. The Rebbe's home was so private, like I said, it wasn't even a part of our world. If I, if I walked on President Street, I could not tell you which was the Rebbe's house. That, to such an extent, you didn't walk by the house, you understand? Unless you had special connections, and a lot of people had special connections, but more than those people didn't have those connections. So I was Menachem Avon 770. The Rebbe came to Shul Shabbos, and then Shabbos he looked perfect. He looked just like himself. You didn't see any avails on the Rebbe. There was a Fabreng in that Shabbos, and the Rebbe said a very long Maimed. And I remember thinking then, that this is a, 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 for, a portend of what's going to be. Let me say the mime in an hour, which is very, very long. Mm-hmm. I remember the mime, Zayit, a very, very, very long mime. And in my mind, I was thinking, okay, so now the Rebbe is going to start saying longer mime, but I was wrong. It was exactly the opposite. During that year, the Rebbe slowly began to reduce the frequency of my modem. Instead of saying it about Mary Shabbos, he started saying it only Shabbos Novarchim. By the following Tishrei, by the following Tishrei, Rebbe ceased saying my modem completely. And then there was just a couple of times after that, Rebbe stopped saying my modem. Um, it, it works out to be about five years before Gimel Tamas, the Rebbe stopped saying my modem, and the Fidikab was exactly the same thing. Five years before he passed away, he stopped writing and saying my modem, and the my modem that came out during the last five years were old my modem that were redone. And in other words, you're looking at hindsight, the Rebbe started reducing the frequency of the Maimodim and the length of the Maimodim. And then Tishrei, he said a couple of Maimodim, and then he stopped. But that Shabbos, a very long Maimon, the Fabrengen. And at that Fabrengen, the Rebbe already spoke about making institutions to carry her name. And the Rebbe wanted people should start things right away. In the middle of Shiva, they made organizations, Keren Chomish and Beis Chomish, organizations that should carry the Rebbe's uh, name. And the Rebbe encouraged people to do it and as quickly as possible, and he thanked people. And I think the Rebbe said that he would uh, participate. The Rebbe's name, Chaya Mushke, is the Gematria 470. Now, I gave you a bunch of pieces of paper, which evidently <laughs> we're not going to get to. So it's going to be, for the most part, I don't want to call it a waste of paper, but this is very interesting material if you could read the Hebrew. Um, but he wrote a letter to a Rav named Rabbi Tzinit that the Rebison's name is Chaya Mushke, which is 470, and 470 is Begematria Ace, Ayin Tov. If anybody speaks Hebrew, you know that Ace means hour, time. There's a book in Tanakh called Keheles, Ecclesiastes. And one of the chapters of Keheles begins with Lakel Ace Uzman, everything has a time. Ace means a time, an hour. And if you're familiar with Kehelis, there's Chav Chaf Itim. There are 28 times identified. Eis Ladabed, Eis Lifkes, Eis Lizchak, a time to cry, a time to laugh, Eis Mohammed, Eis Shalom, a time for war and a time for peace. The whole 
piece, it's a few psukim, it's contrasts. Um, um, so it's really 14 and 14. 14 on, 14 on one side and 14 on the other. A time to speak, a time to be silent, and so on and so forth. So the Rebbe wrote to him that the Rebbe's name is the Gematria Ace, and added that the Rashi says that Ace doesn't mean an hour. Ace means a generation. Okay, Ace is man, that Ace means a dot. I, I just have, I, I'm seeing it for the first time now. I never saw this before, but it's in here on page 15 in your stack. Not the numbers on top, because I, there's a pamphlet that came out that's 48 pages long, and I copied pages into pages intermittently, and I also didn't necessarily copy them in order. I copied them in the order in which I was going to read them with you, but I don't know what's going to happen. Anyway, so I was Menachem Avel after Shabbos in 770. It was a very surreal experience. The Rebbe Davin Maidiv, I don't think he took off his shoes, or maybe he did take off his shoes from Maidiv. The Rebbe sat on a low stool, and he looked terrible. I've never seen the Rebbe. He looked terrible. He looked terrible. Shabbos, he looked so good. He looked to his old... He looked, ter- he looked like a mourner. He looked terrible. The Rebbe looked terrible. And uh, we all filed by. We Menachem Ovo. The Rebbe sat on a low stool, and his eyes were fixed. Um, you must understand that in anybody's relationship with the Rebbe, it was all about eye contact. You wanted to look into the eyes and have those eyes look back at you because the eyes of the Rebbe, it's impossible to, if you haven't seen him, it's impossible to imagine. It's, it's like two lasers. They were so powerful and they were so wise and they said so much. The Rebbe's eyes spoke. They spoke joy, they spoke sadness, they spoke encouragement, they spoke compassion, the eyes of the Rebbe, I know this not because I heard it from other people, because I experienced it. The Rebbe's eyes were very, very, they were, they were, the Rebbe's eyes were, uh, my relationship with the Rebbe is his eyes, I never spoke to him, but we looked at each other, he looked at me and I looked at him for years, and it was, this was our relationship, those eyes. So we filed by, the Rebbe's eyes were fixed, and as you filed by, you wanted your eyes and his eyes to lock for an instant. As you Menachem Avel, literally did not budge. The sat, his eyes were fixed, and in other words, he didn't look at you. You had to pass in front of his radar. That's how he sat, and he was Menachem Avel. Many people. I remember Rabbi Groner was really upset because people were standing around, and the Rebbe said, he, he said, the Rebbe sitting shivering. What are you looking at? You know, the Rebbe sitting. It's not a fabrengin. The Rebbe sitting. Go away. Leave the man alone. Anyway, the Rebbe went back to his home and stayed in his home. The, sh- the Shiva ended, of course, Tuesday morning, because the Levaya was on Wednesday. And um, after the Shiva ended, so as the custom is, you, you console the mourners, you walk out and you walk back in, and you console the mourner again until the mourner to stand up. So obviously, the very prominent Levaya, Hasidim did this. They walked out, they walked back in, and they told the Rebbe to stand up, and they gave the Rebbe a brach. The Rebbe stood up. And I think the Rebbe said immediately that the minig is that at the end of Shiva Mishtalt Mashke, you give Mashke for a Fabrengen. And um, by Minche, the Gabai in the Rebbe's home announced that after Mayr, it's not going to be a Fabrengen in 770. And the Rebbe turns around in 770 where she lived. And this was, this was, a, this was, this was the eye opener. In other words, we figured, okay, the Rebbe is sitting Shiva in his home, so when the Rebbe's home, Shiva is over, the Rebbe's house is locked. And the Rebbe said, no, no, make the Fabrengen here. And that's what happened. So that Tuesday night, there was a Fabrengen in the Rebbe's home, and it was very pushy, it was hard to get in. And um, the one thing that I remember from that Fabrengen, so I went in, but at this point I went in. 
In other words, I didn't go into the Rebbe's home because I figured if the Rebbe's home was only open for Shiva, then the Rebbe's going to close his house, and I just didn't want to go into space, and I thought I was not welcome. But when the Rebbe made a fabrengen in his home, so you couldn't stay all night because it was very pushy. People wanted to come in, and people wanted to say, and so on. The thing that's, that I recall from that fabrengen, it's a funny thing to remember, but it's, I think it's a lesson. Imagine you're sitting in the Rebbe's house, fabrengen, and the Rebbe's upstairs. <laughs> and the Rebbe, and there was a mic, the Rebbe could hear everything. Now, who's going to talk? Which Chacham is going to sit downstairs and Fabreng when you know that the Rebbe can hear every single word? And to be sure, in 770 it's the same thing, but somehow in 770 it was different because the Rebbe's room was not directly above the shul and the voice didn't carry. The Rebbe found it carry. But in the Rebbe's house, it was upstairs directly above us. There was a big staircase, the big hallway, there was no walls. The Rebbe could hear everything. I remember Rabbi Weinberg, Rabbi Weinberg sat and talked. And talked and talked and talked. And at the time, when I was 22 years old, I felt that this was uh, inappropriate. But when I got older, I realized that you got to do what you got to do. The Rebbe wanted a Fabrengen. Fabrengen can't be nobody says anything because they're uncomfortable in front of the Rebbe. Someone has to speak. And in hindsight, I realized that he was doing what needed to be done. Under those conditions, there needed to be a Fabrengen. So he fabranged. That was it. And I think he wasn't the only one. I remember Zalmagrari also speaking. I didn't stay in the Rebbe's house that long because there were so many people who wanted to... The whole Lubavitch wanted to pile into the Rebbe's living room. Um, and that was the beginning of a new era in Lubavitch. The Rebbe opened his home and people davened with the Rebbe in his house three times a day. Um, most of us... I was in Yeshiva. So I was in 770. All the Rebbe's thrillers were, were broadcast live on hookup. So we were daven in 770 at the same time as the Rebbe davened. And uh, if you wanted, you could have put a chazm, but we answered Kaddish, Kedusha, we davened with the Rebbe, all the tefillahs, Shachas Mechamadim, every single day. Um, a few memories of that year are, uh, number one, the Rebbe stopped Fabrengen during the week at all. Completely forgot. Stopped. No more. There were no more weekday Fabrengens. The last weekday Fabrengen was Tu B'Shvat, which was also uh, a Tuesday night. Exactly one week for the Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe Fabrengen. That Sikha, the Rebbe was busy editing when the Rebbe went to the hospital. And when the Rebbe passed away, that morning the Rebbe gave out that Sikha for print in the hours right after the Rebbe passed away. The Rebbe stopped Fabrengen during the week altogether. The Shabbos Fabrengens also changed very quickly and very radically. Everything was suddenly shortened. A lot. You know, a typical Shabbos Fabrengen in my years was two and a half or three hours. All of a sudden it was an hour and a half. Very short. They could come in at 5 to 2, and by 3.15 the whole thing was over. But the Rebbe started speaking weekday sikhas. And this became the new staple. Either after Mincha or after Maira, they just turn around and start to talk. And it wasn't like he gave notice. So it became very difficult for ordinary people. If, you, if you're a lay person, if you're not a yeshiva bach, what are you supposed to do? Live in 770? So they developed all kinds of systems. They had beepers, they had... Uh, alarms, that same alarm that the rings for the Arab Shabbos would sound when the Rebbe was going to say a and people started to buy hookup lines. If you lived a little away from 770, by the time you'd get to 770, the Sikha was over. So you would make a hookup line, then you'd open the phone on, and you could listen to the Rebbe speak simultaneously three blocks from 770, because by the time you'd get to 770, he'd be done. And the Rebbe would speak very frequently in the evenings, uh, sometimes for 5 or 10 minutes, sometimes for 40 minutes, sometimes for an hour. Words, I would say all told, the Rebbe didn't speak less than he had spoken before, but he divided it up into more and more 
uh, occasions. And of course, at this point in the Rebbe's Nesiyas, every time the Rebbe spoke, every time the Rebbe spoke, he handed out dollars. And you can get as many times as you wanted, you got a dollar. In other words, on some days, the Rebbe can give you a dollar because of Sunday dollars. And if he spoke after Mincha, there's a dollar after Mincha. If he spoke after Maid, there's a dollar after Maid. And nobody said he can't go. Anybody who wanted went. Obviously, a lot of people, most people, had Seichel not to go every time. The Rebbe would have never finished. So guests would go and so on. But the, every time, every time the Rebbe spoke, the Rebbe handed out dollars. On that Tuesday, which was the end of Shiva, after Mincha, the Rebbe again spoke a much longer Sikha, which is edited, and he handed out dollars. Mm-hmm. And like I said, after Mar, that night, there was a uh, Fabrik. The Sikha that I want to reference was actually after Shachris. See, this was the unusual thing about it. Since the Rebbe was at home, and we were in Shul, in other words, since it was not a Fabreng, and a Fabreng and I always stood in the same place. But now, wherever you happened to be standing, and the Rebbe's voice came on, you stopped. So I remember exactly where I stood. Where were you when this happened? You know, that kind of thing. So I have many memories of post-Manchez, after the Rebbe had passed away, where I associate a Sikha with a place. Because I remember where I was standing. And it was about 10 after 11, in the morning, now remember, we were going to learn Gemara, we had we davened at 10 o'clock. Davening, by the way, in 77 used to be 9.30, during the week. After the Rebbe passed away, two changes took place. Number one, it changed to 10 o'clock, and number two, the Rebbe started davening with the Minyan. Until the Rebbe passed away, the Rebbe davened Maidev and Mincha, Mincha and Maidev with the Minyan. Shachas, the Rebbe davened B'Yechidus, by himself, except Shabbos and Yom Tif, and a few more days, Tisha B'Av, Purim, and Yortzeit, and Roshonah, and Kippur. After the Rebbe passed away, davening was moved from 9.30 to 10, and the Rebbe davened every day with the minion. So it was about 10 after 11, oh, so the Rebbe's voice comes on. So you ran, you get your hat, your jacket. I remember where I was, I was studying near the Pushka, right in the very, very back of the shul. And that's when the Rebbe introduced the idea of Yemuladis. It was the Rebbe's birthday, um, which was a month and a couple of days after her Shloishim. And the Rebbe spoke a Sikha then that that uh, there's a minig by Chesidim B'chalal to celebrate birthdays, but in her schus that I've made it into an official mitzah. Um, I just remember the, the, how personal it was. And then after Pesach, Achad Shal Pesach, the Rebbe spoke about birthdays again, and then he gave out the minhagim of birthdays. The official birthday of the minig of birthdays is the first birthday after the Rebbetzin, of, of our Rebbetzin after she passed away. Another thing which I remember, and this is very poignant, and this would repeat itself. And people on Mason Lev. The Rebbe spoke in public about himself in a very personal way many times. Many times. Um, and again, when you, when you listen to the Rebbe talk, unless he cried, which happened, you, you didn't appreciate that it was personal unless you thought about what he was saying. Shleishim, when the Shleishim ended, yeah, the Rebbe spoke. I think it was after Mincha. I don't think it was after Maidah, but I may be wrong. And the Rebbe spoke. So it was Chafal of Adar, yeah, 1988, Chafal of Adar, and um, it was Pashas Pada that week. So the Rebbe spoke about Pashas Pada Aduma. And this was what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said that a period of mourning passes, of Avelis end. And the halacha says that you have to stop to mourn. But you don't feel like stopping to mourn. You want to continue mourning. So the Torah teaches you a lesson. 
that some things you have to do like a chayk. In other words, you have to accept the judgment of the Taita. The Taita says, stop mourning. You don't want to stop. And Taita says, you must. So you don't do it because it makes sense to you, or it sits right with you, or it feels right with you. You do it because the Abish said. Now you could hear this sikh on a tape. The Rebbe didn't cry, but it was very personal. The Rebbe Poshet was articulate. He was sharing with everybody his availus, his mourning, and his, his struggle. Yeah. Another sikh during that period, I remember, was Yigimel Nissen. It was Yigimel Nissen. And again, I remember where I was standing, where the Rebbe discussed an interesting story in Chumash Rashi. Also a similar theme where Aaron's two sons are killed. Aaron, another one of them were, were killed in a fire because they had brought a Zod in the base of Mikdash. And Moshe tells Aaron Akoyim that he should continue doing the service. He shouldn't sit Shiva. He shouldn't be Menah. He shouldn't do Avelos. He shouldn't do Aninus. He should do the right in the base of Mikdash. And the Jewish people will mourn for him. So what Aaron Akoyim does, he tells what Moshe Rabbeinu tells him to do, but only to the letter of the law. Anything more than Moshe Rabbeinu told to do explicitly, he acted like a mourner. And Moshe gets upset at him. But he doesn't direct his frustration towards him. He directs the frustration to the remaining two sons. He screams at them and says, I told you that you shouldn't mourn. And Aaron didn't mourn, but he didn't mourn only in those areas that Moshe told him explicitly not to. Anything that Moshe did not explicitly state that he shouldn't mourn, he acted as a mourner when it came to those things. So Moshe gets angry. Another one of Allah's son, Adam's sons, are not going to speak in front of Moshe. So Adam answers. Moshe directs his, prote- his protest to the children, and the father says, and basically what he says, I'm a mourner. I'm a mourner. And you told me I shouldn't mourn, so I didn't mourn about those things specifically you told me, but otherwise, I mourned. So the Rebbe explained the dialogue. I'm, I'm skipping steps because it's technical, but the, the dialogue went like this. Moshe Rabbeinu was, in effect, a heavenly creature. Heavenly creature means he lived in God's world. In God's world, all you do is what God wants. So mourning is a commandment, just like dancing is a commandment, and bringing a carbon is a commandment, and eating the carbon is a commandment, and not bringing the carbon is a It's all the same. Okay, I'm sorry, I, 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 I want to put Facebook back on here. Okay, my, my, it says my phone is overheating. Okay, so whatever they got, they got. Yeah, Mrs. Hebby, you're still here? Okay, see, this is a, it ain't my fault. It ain't my fault. My phone just decided not to let us continue. I'll wait a few minutes to put it back on. I was, I was on the internet until now. Anyway, so the Rebbe said, Aaron says to Moshe, so Moshe says to Aaron, I told you not to mourn. Which means the same God that says you're supposed to be sad, said not to be sad. What's the difference? So Aaron says to Moshe, and this is what the Rebbe explained, that Avelus, mourning, and Aninus is an emotion. And a person can't simply turn their feelings off. So you told me I should suppress my natural emotions. I did. But I only did it to the extent that you instructed. Otherwise, I'm a human being. I lost sons. I'm very sad and very broken, so I mourned. And the way the story finishes, is Vayishma Moshe Vayita Ben Moshe heard and he agreed that Adam was right. So what the Rebbe explained was Moshe told Adam what the Tater says. Adam explained to Moshe what the Tater means. Why? Because Adam played out the mitzvahs as a person. And the Rebbe explained when a person is doing Avelos, they're not just doing a, a ritual 
of sadness. They're sad. And you can't just shut those emotions down. That's what it says. You can't just shut those emotions down. Now, again, at the time that I heard the Sikha, I was, I was 22. I was very not smart. I thought I was brilliant, but I really was very not smart. Um, in hindsight, when I look at it now, I'm sorry, when I look at it now, I understand that everyone was Pasha describing to us his avails. It was Pasha very personal. And there were other occasions, like I just mentioned two examples, where the Rebbe spoke to the old Chassidim in the whole world during the week on a hookup, men, women, and children, and he was pushing, talking, he was sharing with us his Avelos. I don't know what to say. We should have been more mentioned. We should, I don't know what the right wording is. Whatever it is, I'm just, this is just what happened. Um, in this stack, which I haven't gotten to, there's a very, very powerful and compelling and upsetting uh, response. It's, I'll tell you what page it's on. I guess we'll make the papers have some use. It's on page. It's on page twenty. Um, in 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 Torah, in Gemara, and in Chazal, there is something called Eishes Neurim. Eishes means the first wife, a wife of one's youth. Yeah, a young boy, a young girl get married and they grow up together. Yeah, you can't replace an Eishes Neurim. You can't have a second first wife. There's no such thing. Um, this is true psychologically, and it's especially true mystically, because according to Kabbalah. A first hus- a husband and a first wife, they're one person. A second marriage is an accommodation. In other words, the mystical concept of the bonding of a man and a woman is because they're essentially one, right? They're first one, then they're separated, and then they're reunified. But this is true only in the first marriage. So the Gemara says, in, in fact, the Gitten, that if a person divorces his first wife, I just know them, Afilum is Beach. The world cries. The person divorces his first wife, the world cries. Even the Mizbeach, the altar cries. So it's, it's in Torah, the bond between a man and his first wife, or a woman, and uh, a, a couple gets married, they've never been married before. Okay, let's not complicate matters. This is uh, very unusual, it's very deep, it's very special. And the way it's, I always tell you girls, right, there's only one rule about marriage, you're supposed to do it only once. And if you, if you, if you merit to do it only once, you know what it means. You live with a person for decades and you crush it, become one person. It's, it's the deepest, there's no relationship that even comes anywhere near it. It's not like there are other relationships that are comparable. There's nothing like it. A marriage is a marriage. And it's when it's the way it's supposed to be, it's extraordinary. So the Gemara says that um, when a person loses his wife, there are alternatives, like Torah. Right? It says, the Pasuk says, You should see life with the woman who you love, which is usually translated as a Eishas Neurim, as a first marriage, but the Gemara says, that it goes under Torah. And there's actually history, there's history to this. What's the history? That when the Tzemach Tzedek lost his wife, right, the only other Chabad Rebbe to be predeceased by his wife was the Tzemach Tzedek. And the Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek have the same name. The Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek and the Rebbe and the Rebbe have the same name. It's very uh, ironic. When Tzemach Tzedek lost his wife, he was shattered. He was devastated. Devastated. And they couldn't console him. They couldn't console him. And his children said, you know, trying to console him, and he said to his children, you had a mother of the flesh, and now you have a mother in Ganeidin. I need her. 
The Tzemach Tzedek said when he lost his rabbits, and my world has gone dark. He was very dependent on her, and I'm sure there's human components to this, but there's clearly deep spiritual components to this as well. So somebody came to the Tzemach Tzedek, to the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, but this must have been a somebody, somebody who could have said this. And he told the Tzemach Tzedek about this Gemara. That you'll find life with the woman that you love is the Taylor. So the Tzemachtzedek answered him, you actually consoled me. So there was a Jew whose name is very famous in the Jewish world. His name was Harav Zevin, Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin, who passed away in the 70s, and he was in his 90s. He lost his first wife in the 1950s, and he remarried. His second wife came to the Rebbe after he passed away in 1977, I think. He lost his first wife. The Rebbe was very connected to Rabbi Zevin, very connected. Rabbi Zevin was a real chassid of the Rebbe, even though he was probably closer to the Fidik and Rebbe's age than he was to the Rebbe's age. And the Rebbe wrote him a letter and told him this story in the letter. It's printed. Once the Masadik lost his wife, he was very broken, and someone came to him and said to him, you can find life with the woman that you love goes on the Torah you consoled me so the Rebbe tells the story to Rabbi Zevin and then he writes Tzemach didn't know the Gemara Tzemach Tzedek needs somebody else to tell him that this Gemara exists and the Rebbe was saying to Rabbi Zevin you, I know you know this Gemara Rabbi Zevin knew the whole Torah literally but the Gemara says Ein chavosh a prisoner cannot redeem himself. When you're in prison, someone else has to redeem you. So although the Tzemachtelik knew the Gemara, when somebody else told it to him, it, it gave him something. So the Rebbe writes, Rabbi Zevin, I am there for telling it to you. In other words, the Rebbe knew that Rabbi Zevin knows this Gemara, but nevertheless, so someone tried to do that to the Rebbe. But apparently, you got to be the right kind of guy to say it, or you got to be saying it to the right kind of recipient. So the Rebbe writes back, and I, the, 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 the manuscript is above, and we know you have the Hebrew on page 20, yeah? Karasi Hanal Kaposhut, I read what you wrote, and it's obvious. I got similar notes from many people who are telling me that I can find peace and I can find happiness and my consolation in Torah and so on. You mean well, and I appreciate it. But it's still a question. You apparently forgot what the Gemara discusses at length the kind of bond there is between a husband and a wife and how impossible it is to recover from that. So the Rebbe says, I got it, I heard what you said, but if you look at the Gemara in heaven, you realize it's not so simple. In other words, the Rebbe didn't take it. He didn't react when the Tzemach Tzedek reacted. Now, I don't know if the difference is because the Rebbe and Tzemach Tzedek are different people or because the person who told it to the Rebbe was not the same kind of person as the person who told it to the Tzemach. You can't send a schlock to tell the Rebbe personal advice. You have to send somebody. There was nobody who could the Rebbe advise. There was nobody around who was at that level. You know, but Tzemach Tzedek was a very different time. And the Rebbe said, I, I just don't... Point well taken, but I'm not taking the point. You know, in other words, I'm broken, I'm sad, it's not stopping, it's not stopping because you sent me this message, you understand? So this is the story, anyway, but the last thing I want to say, and we're, it's past 12.20 and I, I need to go, and you need to go. The story of Chavay Shvat, more than anything else, 
is the fact that as soon as the Rebbetzin passed away, the Rebbe made her a public figure. A woman who shunned any kind of public recognition, who ran from honor physically, the day she passed away, the Rebbe gave her to us. And it's quite clear, you know, there was a Yid named Jacobson, the father of the Jacobsons, who had the Algemeine Journal. And that, the Rebbe said, passed away Wednesday, so Friday the paper came out, and he must have reprinted the paper, because usually a newspaper that comes out on Friday is printed by Wednesday, the weekly. So the whole thing was on the Rebbeson, and he published pictures of her, a few pictures of her. And he walked by the Rebbe, the Rebbe told him, thank you for the pictures. But as time passed, it became very clear that the Rebbe gave us a Rebbeson that for whatever reasons, during her physical lifetime, none of us had. All of a sudden, she became the Rebbeson. You must understand, the Rebbeson is more prevalent in my life now than, I, than she was when she was here. I, she was literally out of sight, out of mind. And now you don't, wherever you look, there's pictures of her, we talk about her, we'll just name our children now, we tell stories about her, and you know, it's so hard to find stories because pieces, little bits and pieces are coming out slowly, slowly um, over the years. The Rebbe wanted the Rebbe to be a public figure, there's no question about it in my mind. And the reason the Rebbe wanted the Rebbe to be a figure is very simple, because the Rebbe felt and feels that if all of us, especially women, will relate to her, they'll be better people, and better Jews, and better chassidim, and the Rebbe gave us the Rebbe that we didn't have while she was physically alive, the day she passed away, and then for the next four years, next five years, four years, he would push and push and push the, the celebration of her personage, and really the continuation of her life, even though physically she never said passed away, I mean, the sikhs that the Rebbe said about her is extra, really. I mean, the Rebbe spoke about her like, almost like she was a Rebbe. <laughs> really, the Rebbe elevated her. The Rebbe spoke about his Rebbe like as if she was one of the holiest people ever. And the Rebbe didn't do it because it's emotional. He did it because it was the truth. And the Rebbe told somebody that people underestimate who she was. People just didn't know her. The Rebbe said, only the Abishtin knows. God knows how great she was. The Rebbe said that. Um... And uh, this is the story. And I'll just finish with one thing. Uh, I'll give you this version of it, although there's so many versions of it. Uh, my son married a girl from Ottawa. The family name is Katek. So the, the chasana took place last summer in Ottawa. We spent a week there. And Mrs. K. Devora Katek, who's probably here, and she's a graduate of, of this school, um, was learning in, seven, seven, in, in this school in the 1970s. I don't know if you know my Mechatana says she's she's very forward. If she was a business lady, she'd be very, very, very rich. She happens to be a shlucha, so she's very, very rich with mitzvahs. Uh, but she's not at all the reticent and hesitant and apologetic. She's very forward, very strong, very outspoken. So she got another girl to join her <laughs> in basically inviting themselves to the Debitant's house. She wrote a letter, and the two of them signed it, and what she wrote in the letter was she explained to me her life. Her friends all thought she was out of her mind. Her parents were few with her. She, she'd given up so much to be Jewish, and she wrote to the Rebetzin, I don't know if she said it in the letter, but what she told me, I felt I was entitled. I was entitled to get to the top. So she wrote a letter, they signed it, they went to the house, they put it in the mailbox, and they ran away. The cook in, that school, in our school was a personal friend of the Rebetzin, 
And a day or two later, she calls her over and says, did you send a letter to the Debitson? So she thought that she was going to be reprimanded, and she very sheepishly said yes, and she said, well, the Debitson wants to see you. And they came to see the Debitson. And just what I described, the Debitson was beautifully dressed, the table was set, she served them, whatever it was, but she served them what she felt young, single women would enjoy. And she chatted with them for a while, it must have been an hour. She talked to them for a long time. And the things she, t- she didn't talk about religion, she didn't talk about the Abishtad, she didn't ask them how she became from, she just chatted with them, she talked to them, she asked them what music they like, and what their hobbies are. And the lesson that she took, that my Mechotanista took, and this is something that you need to have a little bit of wisdom to appreciate. That Ebbetson was one of those ladies who, first of all, she managed every conversation. You never got where she didn't want you to go. She never talked about herself. She was off limits. You were on the table. She could ask you any questions she wanted. And she was very involved in the personal lives of many people in a very personal way. But you never discussed her. She managed... She, the Rebison was the kind of lady who shared with you what she wanted to share with you. And every person had a different relationship. And she decided what we're talking... The woman who told me that she was very turned off by the Rebison. I said, why? All she wanted to discuss was fashion. And I felt that he was shallow. Now, what this lady didn't understand, which we now understand, and you can speak to people, was that Ebbetson talked to her about fashion because that was as far as she was going to go with this lady, maybe because that lady was shallow. Did did Ebbetson, every relationship that she had, she managed. And there were people who she spoke about very deep things, very religious things, and the people she just... But when she spoke to women and girls, it was very common for her to talk about domestic things. And um, there's a lady whose name is Mrs. Hager, Mrs. Hager, Louise Hager from London, who, she knew the Rebbe from childhood. She was not as a girl yet. And she said, what the Rebbeson was doing, she wasn't making small talk, she wasn't chatting, she was teaching. She says, I grew up in the 70s, I was a liberated woman, I was a feminist. And the Rebbeson was teaching me, in all the conversations I had with her, the, the value of domesticity, how beautiful and how valuable and how meaningful it is to have a home and that the home should be beautiful and that the children should be dressed right. People used to come into their house and she would look through what they bought in the store and she would discuss. She, was, she involved herself in people's, uh, what is the word I'm looking for, in the, what, they, what they call it, uh, menus, what they're going to feed their families. She wasn't just chatting because she had nothing else to talk about. The Rebbeson was a brilliant, she was, she was a Fiedek Rebbe's daughter. She had an incredible IQ. She was well educated. She spoke many languages. She read in many languages. She wrote in many languages. And she had an incredible amount of information in her head. She was an engineer. She was a mathematician. She knew how to learn Taita. And she talked to people about cooking. Not because she didn't want to talk about anything else. Because she was teaching. She was teaching people. And I, I think the thing which mm-hmm. you have to take away from her in general, but especially as women, she personified, she was the prototype of the fusion between religion and humanity, and humanists. That being from doesn't mean not being a person. To the contrary, the, the most human of human beings is a human being who is connected to Hashem. And in her, this was manifest, this was revealed, it was played out so completely that all you saw was person, you didn't see 
the holiness. You didn't see the religious side. But you did see the holiness. You did see the religious side because there was no conflict. And this is probably more than anything else what she taught and what she teaches. Bichlau, yeah? but especially to women, is that normal is holy, it's Jewish, it's beautiful, it's good, it's right. And she taught it by her example, she taught it by the way she talked to people, and so forth and so on. 